Just wait a minute. We got a job for you. I don't want no job. Why not? It's too much, too much like work, man. Listen, this is strictly nowhere. You got a lot of sick, old-fashioned ideas about working hard and living clean, and it's all a lot of junk. I'm too tired to listen. I mean, work is a sucker. You know, I like my job, Skipper. I wouldn't want to lose it. Hey, it's uh, me, Chris T, and this is Job Story number 20, and I'm sitting with uh, Lewis Hyman, economic historian at Cornell University, who has written a new book, and it's called Temp, and it examines how we got to where we are now, where I think you said in the book, was it 70% of the jobs created in the last 10 years or so? Would, could qualify as temporary? 94%. I so got the figure wrong, 94%. Not, it's almost hard to believe, but it's 94% of net new jobs, the ones that are created over the ones that are destroyed. And it's a truly shocking number. And you kind of lay out how we got there, uh, how, the atomization that took place along the way. Do you, do you want to give us the bullet points? Sure. So the book starts in the 1930s with the labor struggles and the business setbacks that forced labor leaders and business leaders and policymakers to create a stable corporation and a stable workplace. And so I trace the history of how that happened and how that was made. And then I trace how it began to fall apart around 1970 as new ideas about how the corporation should be organized sort of infuse themselves from management consultants and business gurus. And then I trace it to today, understanding how work became so insecure for the rest of us. So where does manpower stand in all of this? The temporary agency that sprung up in the late 40s into the 50s with the idea of uh, if the little lady at home wants to earn a few extra dollars, she could go and work temporarily. Yeah, so I hang the story on a few different companies, one of which is Manpower, which was the first major post-war temp agency, and it's based on this idea of women's work not really counting, which is really important to the story. So the story of how these women would come in and be emergency replacements, but also they didn't really deserve to earn their own living because, you know, they had husbands. And so part of that post-war economy was built on the idea of some people's security mattering more than other people. So if you're a woman, if you're a person of color, if you're uh, a migrant of some kind, you don't matter as much. And so what I argue in the book is that today's insecure economy was rehearsed in the working lives of these not white men in the post-war period. The story of the book is the story of the reorganization of the corporation from top to bottom, how executives get displaced by consultants, how office workers get displaced by temps, and how factory workers, union factory workers, get displaced by undocumented migrants. And McKinsey's an important part of that. They are the first major management consulting firm. You know those people they come to your office and then tell you how to do your job and then fire you. Those people. And uh, I had never heard of this, but years ago, I remember a friend of mine, this woman saying to me, I said to her, what are you doing these days? She said, I'm doing some consulting. <laughs> yeah. And I said, what is that? And she said, well, I go into a company and I spend a few weeks there and I take a look at what they're doing and I tell them how they can do it better. And, and I said, does that mean firing people as well and she said in some cases it does that's really up to the company but I give my recommendation so that's what McKinsey well, made their bones Well it's funny on. you put it that way because yeah I'm actually a little simplifying because it's easy just to find expensive people and fire them it's hard to figure out how to help a company grow and where McKinsey and Boston Consulting uh, Group 
um, and these other major consultancies really made their money was in helping companies figure out how to grow. And the ideas that are the sexiest are the ones that enable companies to shrink their workforces while increasing their growth. And this is what they really begin to sell uh, in the 1970s. And how is the temporary employee fit into that? Where where do they fit into that scheme? Well, it's funny because we often think of consultants as very different than temps, very different than migrants, but they're all people who aren't attached to their workplace. They're people who come in and out, and whereas consultants are often really well paid and temps are not, uh, they're all part of that same system. And so in the book I show how these consultants begin to restructure the workplace in their image as they become more important in the organizing of corporations. Uh, We're talking with uh, Lewis Hyman, who's the author of Temp, a new book that uh, is doing quite well. We were talking a moment ago, you say, in terms of books about work, right? I mean, people want to find out why we got here, how we got here. Yeah, I did not think anyone would buy a a labor history book uh, in 2018, and yet it seems People want to understand, well, where did this come from and why do I work this way as opposed to, you know, and we blame technology for a lot of it. We blame Uber, but the story goes back further than Uber, um, you know. It's funny you mention them because I, I don't want to focus in on just uh, car sharing services, but I've been taking some lifts lately, uh, even though I own a car. I mean, sometimes I just, it's more convenient. And yeah. Don't have to deal with parking and having a lot of conversations with Lyft and Uber drivers, and sometimes I wish I could hand them a copy of your book because I'll ask them one simple question, which is, well, have you ever broken down how much you're earning per hour? And and with few exceptions, none of them can tell me. Yeah. Which indicates to me either they don't want to know or they're frightened of what that number <laughs> will end up being. If, finally. if you want to be really scared, ask them about their depreciation costs. Because even though depreciation is something totally deductible for all of these workers, very few of them know how to calculate it. And it's funny, I asked the policy people at Uber about this, you know, why don't you just educate people more on what they can and can't do? And they said, if we do that, we're said we are definitely in violation of classification laws. And so... So, so now they could be classified as employees because... Because you're training them? Because you're training them, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's really intense. That's crazy. So the whole system is just crazy. Um, We we have laws and ideas about work that are based on an older economy, and we really need to rethink that. But yeah, and what do do they say? Do they like their jobs at Lyft? Um, Some of them put a brave face on it, and if you talk to them for five minutes, the face starts to fall, I find. You know, I find that... The more you ask them about what they're actually doing and how it fits in to their grand scheme of earning a living, the more you find that they're not thrilled about. I, the one guy I talked to was teaching mixed martial arts and driving mm-hmm. Lyft and Uber. And I asked him, how much can you earn in a day, for instance? He mentioned something about they had a $330 promotion, but you had to drive 25 rides, and you had to, there were certain things you had to do. And then out of that, of course, you're paying for your fuel and your car loan and whatever else the cost of business is for you. So, so ultimately, are they making $10 an hour? Are they making $15 an hour? Could they be further down the field working at Trader Joe's and having health care, for instance? I mean, it, it just seems to me we've sold them in this idea, just like manpower did in the 50s and 60s, of independence, set your own schedule, 
work as much or as little as you want? Is it a lie, ultimately? I mean, I think it's not a lie that's what we all want. I mean, I think that we all want as Americans to have autonomy and it's a very seductive lie um, because, you know, the alternative for people driving for Uber, you know, is not working a good union job or even a stable office job. It's it's selling coffee. It's it's working at Walmart. And, you know, this guy you just mentioned would much rather be teaching mixed martial arts all the time. Right. That's what he cares. If he about. could, I'm sure. Yeah. And it's just hard to make a living these days in the service economy. And so the problem with Uber, you know, to my mind, Uber is a symptom of the real problem, which is the rest of our economy doesn't work for working people. Uh, is it because we don't allow people to unionize the way we did and because of right to work laws more than anything else? I mean, if we had, uh, for instance, a blue wave in November and, and people started talking again about people's right to unionize and right to uh, use the leverage that they have to win some concessions for themselves, would, would that make a difference in people's lives? I don't think it would that much because mm-hmm. they ha- people have the right to unionize in New York State, they have the right to unionize in California. The trick is not the laws, the trick is how do we organize the workers. And right now, we have a union movement that's focused more on protecting what they already have than focusing on where working people are, right? So, and it's hard, it's, it's, it's a lot of risk. So in the book, I write about the 1930s. And in the 1930s, there were breakaway unions from the AFL that said, look, we can't just be organizing bricklayers. We have to organize auto workers, even though that's not what we've done before. And they figured out a way to do it, and that's what we got to do today. We got to figure out how to organize Amazon warehouses and you know Lyft drivers as well as you know the old economy. Well, in terms of the you know the classic, let's say union strike classic, if you want to call it that, and including uh, the Flint. Strike in 1936 and other strikes that we really look to as, as you point out, sort of the birth of this idea of um, if you're working class, you can make it into the middle class, and we're not going to penalize you for lack of a college degree, whatever. We're gonna, you're going to have a decent life. Um, in 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 terms of that, can you get people at an Amazon warehouse? Uh, who are probably scared as hell mm-hmm. uh, to to join together with other people and use that that leverage because to me the GM workers were pissed off and angry not necessarily scared if they were scared they would have never gone out on strike but I tried to unionize a workplace of mine years ago and I ran into the same thing over and over again I don't want to get fired that's what I kept hearing they I don't w- want to get fired they were scared. Their backs were against the wall. It was mm-hmm. the middle of the Great Depression. I mean, think about a time to take on the world's biggest corporation in the middle of the Great Depression. Well, you know, that's what Amazon workers are going to face whenever the next downturn comes. They're going to be the biggest corporation in the world, and they are going to have all the power if they seize it themselves. And, you know, I don't think Amazon's going to do to its workers what GM did to workers in 36 was shoot them with tear gas and rifles and you know, bring I mean, in they, the Pinkertons. Bring in the Pinkertons. They were scared. So right. it's it's, you know, it's about fighting for a stake. It's about fighting for democracy, and democracy can't survive if we stay unequal for too long. Well, so I mean, if you were to say the difference between those workers back then and these workers now, are there other reasons why they might not ever join uh, some kind of organizing push at their workplace? Are there other reasons? Are they 
Are they not miserable enough yet? I mean, it sounds pretty miserable. Working at an Amazon warehouse, anything you've read about it, uh, the more exposés come out, the worse it sounds. So, so is it still not bad enough yet? I mean, I think that there is an important political component, right? So the workers in 36 knew that the, the federal government wasn't gonna, weren't going to send in troops. They, the, the state governor wasn't going to send in you know, the National Guard. And you know, I think it's important to realize that you know, the governor of Washington state has a lot of power in this. The mayor of Seattle has a lot of power. And whenever that moment comes, when the workers and Amazon begin to organize, you know, it's going to be a question that's not just about money, but morality, about what kind of capitalism do we want in this country? And, you know, how do we go about doing it? Because what the workers did in 36 was perfectly illegal. Um, and just like Uber is perfectly illegal, right? So in the book, I write about what labor can learn from Uber, and they can learn that laws no longer matter. What matters is power. And I think that's an important lesson that we've forgotten in America in the last we focus more on lawyers than uh, power. Well, you do make that point in the book that when unions decided to pivot to using attorneys as opposed to strikes to get what they wanted, that there was something lost in that. Yeah, I think that you lose that solidarity, that feeling of camaraderie, and you rely, you think it's the state giving you something. You think it's lawyers giving you something as opposed to you taking what you can, which is, of course, what capital does all the time. They take whatever they can get, right? That's, and that's just how it is. That's how markets work. And so, you know, I think that we've substituted that kind of purposeful rage and strategy um, with just a bunch of lawsuits. And, you know, the lawyers want to keep their jobs like anybody else. They want it to just drag on for years. But that's not how labor has seized power in any, you know, any big movement in American history. Where do you see hope at this point in terms of uh, a movement in labor that is, um, that can have tendrils that spread out to the rest of us? Because one of the important things we're, we need to remember about what the labor movement did at the 30s and 40s and 50s is made life better for everybody who was in any union. You didn't have to be in a union to get those benefits, obviously. So. What do you see likewise nowadays? Yeah, unions set the pattern for the rest of our society. And well, what's exciting about today is that we have opportunities to make connections like never before through the internet, right? So there are lots of online platforms like coworker.org that have already been very successful at facing down Starbucks. And I think what we need to figure out are new models for distributed organizing that parallel the distributed way that um, businesses are now organized and you know that's how we've been successful in the past is by learning from you know those who want to enact power over us and I think we can do it again and I think we need to do it again and I think the other part of it is that as terrible um, a job as freelancing seems in some ways in terms of workplace security and paychecks it's also way better than turning a wrench for eight hours a day or um, filling out a form all day long in an office. And so we're at this moment where I think we can really combine autonomy and security if we do the right things right now that restores what I think of as the real American dream, which is self-determination and opportunity to succeed. Would part of that be some kind of uh, health care that's freed from the shackles of employment? 
Yeah, I think that the employer-employee relationship, we hang so much on that and it's broken down. And we hang savings we on We hang that. savings and retirement and healthcare and identity and our social lives on our work places. And it's time to let that go and really figure out a way to have portable benefits and make it really easy for freelancers and consultants so that when they do a job, they get paid immediately. They um, get some sort of fractional pay into their retirement and benefits. And we open ourselves back up to other parts of our social lives that aren't in the workplace to make those human connections. That's interesting. Talking about that for a minute, because I, I experienced a profound loss of identity when I lost my job. Yeah. I mean, I think that anything that you do for a dozen years, you come to think of yourself as that thing. And I'm referring to myself here. So I mean, we've been hearing about this a lot lately, loss of status, this idea of what may have driven people to go and vote for Donald Trump, for instance. So what do we do about those people who their identity was welded to what they did for a living and then their living goes away? I think this is harder than some kind of policy shift. As hard as it seems to pass a policy in DC, a cultural shift in how we understand ourselves and how we value ourselves, man, that's a lot harder, but it's something we need to do. Uh, we need to value care work. We need to value curiosity. We need to value each other and reconnect. And you know, we've been really disconnected for quite some time now in the era of first television and the internet. And it's about restoring those kinds of social worlds that get taken up by that second and third job, you know, and- What about creativity? Because I think that's on the list too of things we need to value because I feel that um, people very often what they're good at, what they're creative at is not necessarily what they go and do for a living. I mean, I was lucky in that I was able to for many years, but um, how, do we, how do we value creativity again and say to people, because I think you've made the point as well. I've heard you on a few podcasts talk about with AI and robotics and so on, um, there are still jobs that robots and AI won't be able to do and those are in the creative field. So how do we help people become more creative, maybe find a way to use their creativity to get paid? I mean, I think it's about reclaiming what is human. I mean, that's the question of the machine. And it's been the question of the machine age since we started having mechanical threshers and all the, half the population was turned out of the fields into the cities. I think that we are at a, a point where we can figure out what human work is. And I think we don't all know what that is. And some of us now have creative, curious work that allows us to do do what we want. I have a job like that. It sounds like you used to, you know, very recently. But I think most of us don't. Most of us make change. Most of us, you know, hand out burgers. Most of us fold clothes. And I just don't think that any human should do that. I think that all of us would rather be doing something else than that. And, you know, we're not all going to be rocket scientists, but there's always something better for us to do. You know, whether it's teaching karate or taking care of our kids or our parents or just going fishing or, you know, making fish prints. Um, we can see it in Etsy. I think if Amazon's the dystopian side of the digital economy right now, Etsy is the utopian side where it's often discounted, you know, and I think it's discounted because of sexism. Mm. So 500,000 women make their full-time living on Etsy. That's kind of remarkable. 500,000 women, right? And you know, they're mostly rural uh, people who sell on Etsy, mostly women. And you know, I don't think that's to be discounted. That's a giant number. And it's also a place where they can be creative and sell things people want, and it's growing tremendously. So figuring out how we support these micro entrepreneurs 
that don't look like the tech bros of Silicon Valley, I think that's just that's a great way to look to what the future might look like. But it's also a choice that we have to support those people as they go forward. I was waiting for the ferry over there in Weehawken over by the UBS back offices, the big Swiss bank. And uh, coming out of that building was a procession of Indians, and I don't mean Native Americans, going off to have their lunch in nature and nothing but coming out of that building. Are these the T5 visa people that we keep hearing about? And, and is there any way that we can help uh, people find work with, through legislation that says we have to limit this situation? Because it seems to me there's gotta be something beside, there, gotta, there has to be people besides people you're bringing over from India cheaply to do this work. Is this, is this something that we should talk about trying to do away with, or is it? Or is they horses already out of the barn? Well, there's a billion people in India and a billion people in China, you know, mm. and that's just a lot of smart people. That's yeah. just a lot of smart people. And so, to my mind, is we should bring them here if they want to come here and help them become Americans, like all of our ancestors, except for Native Americans. Mm. The trick is right now, a lot of our visa programs restrict how much you can pay them, so they become a cheap alternative to American laborers and high school workers. So I think we need to make sure that when people come here, they're treated the same as Americans. Right now, they're not, right? So whether it's high-end programmers and H-1B visas, or whether it's- I'm sorry, H-1B visa. Yeah. I said tier five, but that's like a youth mobility visa, if I remember correctly. There's a lot of different categories. There's a lot of different kinds yeah. of visas, but th those are the ones I meant, which were recently, that, about a year ago, there was a whole series of articles about them being workarounds to paying people yeah. here. Which isn't fun, which yeah. isn't cool. Like right. I am totally fine if, they, if, if these big corporations wanna bring smart people from India and China um, or France and, right. and pay them a lot of money in a market. But when they're brought And here, as the grandson of immigrants, me too. I mean, yeah. yes, please come here, but there should be wage parity. Is that your saying? There should be wage parity, and those people, when they get here, shouldn't feel like if they do the wrong thing, they get kicked out and lose their home, right? So it's this threat, and it's also true at the bottom for undocumented workers, right? So they do the dirtiest, most dangerous work, and, you know, our, our companies are able to get by by employing these people in their factories, doing work that... Americans don't want to do, but also sh no one should do. No one should be in these dangerous conditions. And this is this is part of the point that when and, you have- and you, you point out yeah. in the book too that the undocumented worker thing was actually encouraged initially by the government, right? Wasn't it the government that said, we're gonna figure out a way to bring people up from Mexico to do this work that needs to be done that yeah. we don't have enough people to do? Yeah, so the first guest worker program, right? Because our borders were closed more mm -hmm. or less from 24 to 65 and the guest worker program from Mexico, they weren't completely closed with um, Latin America, but the guest worker program, the Barceros program, you know, is this first time people are brought in and aren't really American citizens. And then, you know, undocumented workers continue through the 70s and 80s working in all those Silicon Valley factories that sort of, you know, we celebrate today, but we're home to lots of workers who did things that were not permitted by OSHA regulation that were not, uh, yeah. and it's truly horrifying examples in the book. The book is called Temp, it's, it's out recently, and it documents how we got to where we are these days, where uh, people are doing Instacart, and they're doing Postmates, and they're doing Uber and Lyft. Um, am I leaving any of these out? There seems to be more than I can possibly count. These things that 
rely on an app and fiber optics and your two feet, essentially? Well, there's, there's another one every day. But the trick with them is they talk about these things as if they're technology-driven. And when you talk about technology, it seems like it's part of progress and the future and you can't fight the future. But really, it's, it's not about that. It's about people who don't have a better choice. And so the more we do to create better choices and alternatives for people, the better these kinds of jobs will become for all workers. Uh, and before we leave, um, there's one thing I want to touch upon too, which was uh, the unemployment figures. I was talking with my brother recently. This is someone who's working two part-time jobs, has no health care, and he's talking to me, someone who recently lost their job, and he's talking about how great the economy is doing, how Wall Street is up and unemployment is down. Um, can we disavow my brother of those two things, first of all? Because I, I tried to. I'm not sure I had the right way to put it. Essentially what I said is it's, it's up if you're in the investor class. Yes, you're doing well um, with Wall Street. Uh, and unemployment doesn't document all of the people who are now discouraged from even seeking work. Yeah, so your brother is counted as having a job. And when we say job, we think that means he has health care and benefits and all the things we come to expect and enough to live on, right? So. Oftentimes when you hear criticisms of Uber or Lyft or whatever, um, they, they say they're not real jobs. Well, real jobs, you know, a W-2 job, that's what they call them because of the tax form. Those don't often don't pay benefits or anything else like that or even a living wage. So that's part of it. The alternative isn't somehow better. And then the other part is that we have a bunch of people between 6 and 8% of the adult workforce that has just dropped out has just given up on ever finding a job ever again. And that labor force participation rate, which your listeners can look up very easily on Google, uh, you'll see very quickly that this doesn't look anything like the unemployment rate. That the number we're told again and again is great is only looking for people who have, who have looked for work and found it uh, in the last, or not found it in the last few weeks. And that just really hides a lot of what's going on. Just like the stock market hides a lot of what's going on because the stock market's owned by very few people, and even though your $5,000 or $1,000 has gone up, it's nothing compared to a billionaire's, and that's where the real benefit is. So should we revamp the way unemployment figures are shared? Or there is a push to do that, is there not? Yeah, there's a big push, um, and certainly econ nerds like myself have been talking about this for years, but of late I've noticed a lot of pushback on those unemployment numbers because it's concealing a lot of the real experience. And the point isn't to celebrate a number like you're watching football. The point is to understand the living experiences of Americans. And a lot of Americans feel insecure. A lot of Americans feel discouraged. And they are, you know, going to A lot of Americans feel unsafe in the workplace. We just had news today of another workplace shooting. Um, and I, I have this opportunity. I'm speaking to you in terms of workplace studies. Do we have a way yet to explain what goes on here? Do we have a way to say to people uh, you need you should be safe in your workplace? Or are we? Do we have an understanding of what causes these? I heard people on the bus on the way over here trying to figure this out. Um, I think that Americans are really frustrated by work right now because even if you did everything you were supposed to, you can still be screwed over. You can mm. still be let go. And whether or not a company lets you go has nothing to do lots of the time with how good you did your job. That kind of obli reciprocal obligation that we expect from our workplaces is gone. And of course, we have lots of guns, right? So mm -hmm. this doesn't happen in other countries because they don't have as many guns. But, you know, I'm sure people are just as angry in Australia or, you know, Germany. 
I do appreciate you taking some time to speak with me today. Uh, Lewis Hyman, who is an economic historian at the Cornell University ILR, which is Industrial Labor Relations? Industrial Labor industrial relations. relations, yeah. We were founded after the war to think about industrial democracy, and nowadays we're trying to think about what does digital democracy look like. I do appreciate you spending this time with me, though. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. My thanks again to Louis B. Hyman, author of the new book, Temp, How American Work, American Business, and the American Dream Became Temporary. He is a labor historian at Cornell's Institute for Workplace Studies, part of its Industrial and Labor Relations School. Job stories available via Apple and Google Podcasts, Google Play, iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, and YouTube. Go to shows.pippa.io slash job story for details and submit your job story at jobstorypod at gmail.com or in the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash jobstorypod. You can also record a job story of 90 seconds or less at speakpipe.com slash jobstory or record a longer job story by calling way for job pod That's 929 929- Four five six two seven six three. Please share Job Story with your friends and family, and be sure to review Job Story on iTunes and elsewhere. Until next time, this is Chris T. Working hard and hardly working. So, uh, you guys are my new coworkers. So, working hard or hardly working? <laughs> I said, working hard or hardly working? Working hard or hardly working? Working hard or hardly working? That's a simple question! Are you A, working hard or B, show? <laughs>